title of the message is The Making of an Evil Man. And I don't normally like titling messages like that, The Making of an Evil Man, but this is one of our opportunities to glance into this book of Esther to see a pagan culture and exactly how that pagan culture contributes to the making of evil men and women. I think we ought to know this. We, we know evil men and women are all around us. We know evil exists. I don't think it's hard to convince anyone of that if you live in the world that we live in today. Uh, but how does that happen? How does it unfold? How does it impact everyone else? How do we avoid this idea of how things in our lives contribute to the making of evil actions and evil deeds? Haman, in the book of Esther, is the villain. Adam. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we find six brief verses that tell us about how this man was wired, exactly what was behind him, and exactly how he came to the place of hating the man named Mordecai, and eventually all of the Jews at the same time, and how he wanted to destroy them. Uh, you know, some of the great movie lines these days have to do with finding out about the villain, what was behind his life, and exactly what made him as evil as he was. Uh, Batman and the Joker in particular come to mind in one of those more recent movies. And we always want to know what made the Joker so evil. What made him want to uh, be able to destroy mankind? That Batman had to come and rescue him. Well, this is one of those stories, except real life and a man named Haman. So please stand with me as we read God's Word together today, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you've been with us, you know the last few weeks we've looked at this kingdom, a Persian kingdom, King Ahasuerus, has deposed Queen Vashti because she refused his request to come present herself before a large group of men. And uh, so he deposed her. He put her out of the kingdom or the castle, the castle rather, and um, she remained his wife but not the queen. So a nationwide beauty contest was hosted and Queen Esther uh, how she came to power was this young woman named Esther, who was a God-fearing Jewish woman who nobody really knew she followed the God of Israel. And so the Bible says that God gave her great favor, and King Ahasuerus anointed her, appointed her as queen. Now, the subplot going into the story is there was an evil man named Haman who wanted to destroy all the Jews, and soon he would learn that she herself was a Jew. So let's pick it up, beginning in verse 1. And uh, the title of this little section of Scripture is Haman's Plot Against the Jews, and this is how it unfolds. Verse 1, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Now, the term Agagite refers to a group of Amalekites. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. They were perpetually at war with Israel. So you have some inbred, if you will, hatred towards the Jews already taking place. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were in the kingdom and at the gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they spoke daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. 
Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, in the long run, we're going to talk about this next week in a large degree about racism and the seeds of racism, but today, the seeds of evil in this one man's life. Let's pray together. Father, today, I ask you to give us wisdom as we walk through chapter 3 of Esther. Help us to see evil for what it is, to see the warnings of it. And then, Father, I pray that you would help us see the better way that you always have. No matter what culture, what country, what time, you have a better way. You are the better way. Father, show us that. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. So we're going to take a few moments and walk through pagan culture, specifically Persia in this day and time. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as we know him, is in charge. And as he leads, as he rules, he's got absolute power. This is the worst of dictatorship, if you will. A huge kingdom, 127 provinces, spanning a huge part of the globe at that time. So this king has power. And right now, they're contemplating going against the Greeks with their huge, massive army. So everyone's gathered to this particular place for that particular reason. And Haman, as we've just read, is elevated to power during that time in front of all these people. So today, as we look at pagan culture, we're going to know something about its source, its actions, and its consequences. To give an overview, Haman is promoted to a position of great power. Mordecai, the Jew, also a great valuable servant of the king, refuses to bow to Haman. Now, there are a number of reasons that our text kind of gives us hints about as to why he won't bow. Everyone else is bowing. The king has decreed that even Haman should bow, but nobody it's, I mean, but Haman will not be, uh, be worshipped by Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow. And so those reasons are several. Number one, it's possible that Mordecai knew exactly who he was. And as an Agagite, as a descendant of the Amalekites, he simply refused to bow to him because of that reason. But another reason is there as well. He already sees through the life of Haman. He knows he's evil, he's wicked, he's murderous, he's filled with hate, and he's just not going to bend the knee to him. And so that sets up this confrontation that we read about over these next few chapters with Mordecai and Haman. Haman, on the other hand, because Mordecai doesn't kneel, he is filled with pride and rage and lashes out. And it sets our scene. So as we walk into this for a few minutes, let me just share with you three warnings that you need to see from a pagan culture and a pagan leader at exactly what happens when we lose all perspective of life and uh, the others around us. This is the life of Haman and the hatred that was coming out of his life. So if you're a note taker, three warnings we're going to give you today out of this culture and this man. Warning number one. Pride and power can corrupt. Pride and power can corrupt. Now, as you write that down, go back to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman and advanced him and established his authority. In the presence of all these people gathered at that time, a very sudden promotion of this man named Haman. We don't hear much about Haman at all until this moment when King promotes him. So here he is. A relative unknown to the court in some senses, he is placed in front of the king and promoted. The Bible says that this is a huge promotion. He's over all of the princes, not just 
all the people in that region, but all the princes in all 127 provinces. So this man has authority. He is somebody. Ultimately, he's second in power only to the king. Now, Haman is mentioned from this chapter and verse onward, and we see some glimpses in his life. I want you to jump ahead with me for just a moment to see some things that are happening in his life as a result of his promotion. All kinds of pride, all kinds of the negative parts of power are being able to crop up in his life. Look in chapter 5, verse 11. We have a glimpse of him talking with his family about some things that are happening to him. It says that Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance when the king had magnified him, how he had promoted him above all the princes and the servants of the king. So Haman's gone home and he says to his wife and all of his children, look at me. Look at what the king has done for me. Look at the power I have. Look at how incredible I am. Look at the fact that I am someone. This guy is in to win it for himself. He's in to draw attention to himself. Now I want to pause here because this is part of the warning section of this message. Pride in any form and at any time is always a red flag in the scripture. All the way through the Bible, God warns against pride. And of course, in the end, we know if we read the Bible much, that God will always, always destroy the proud. And that's going to happen to Haman as well. But remind yourself of some of the things over the years you may have heard from the Bible or heard from people who are talking about the Bible. What about this one? Pride goes before the what? The fall. Pride goes before the fall. That's in Proverbs chapter uh, 18. I mean, chapter 16, verse 18. In the New Testament, James is writing about selfishness. And in chapter 4, he says this in verse 6. He says, God is opposed to the what? To the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the meek. Now, the Bible is very plain. God opposes proud people. And at every turn, not only will he oppose them, but he will lower them to the level where they need to be. There's a term for people like Haman these days. And we would call him in this culture, in this time, uh, a narcissist. Narcissism is the whole idea of what this man is doing and what he's thinking and how he's living. Let me define narcissism for us. It's the pursuit of gratification from vanity or egotistical admiration of one's own self or one's own attributes. In other words, it's about somebody who says, look at me and look at what I've done and look at how everybody else is inferior to me. I am as highly ranked as anyone. Look at me. A person like that always gets their, uh, their satisfaction from everyone else acknowledging their own greatness. That's a, a narcissist. That name, of course, came about because of Greek mythology Many of you have heard of Narcissus who fell in love with his own image reflecting in the pool of water. When he looked into the water, saw his image and said, man, man, look how great I am. Look at how I look. And that, that little story kind of gives us that name. So here's the guy who's a narcissist. Here's the guy who not only has a life revolving around himself, but he's been given great power, great power of a great kingdom. Those are dangerous combinations. Having pride and having power as they go hand in hand will almost always corrupt a life. I've written this down in my notes. When pride is married to power, you always have corruption. It was Lord Acton in the previous century that made this statement. 
who says power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you've heard that before maybe. Now that idea is conveyed that as a person's power increases, their moral sense diminishes. As they have absolute power, and if they are enamored with themselves, then it really doesn't matter what they do and say and the impact it has on other people. They don't, they don't really care because their life is revolving around themselves. This is the man, Haman, that we're looking at today. Haman personifies all the things that we've talked about right here. He's a man that's not accountable to anyone else. The king did not know all that he was doing. Everyone else had to bow to him, and he was a problem that had to be, at some point, removed. Let me just pause for a moment and say, people in power without accountability are all in danger of that same kind of thing. Pride and power are intoxicating. It causes us to think that we're more than we ought to be. Without somebody next to us saying, you're not all that. You're not all that you think you are. You're not all that, that you hope to be. Then it's important that we see it's a warning flag from God's word to all of us. Pride and power can corrupt. Secondly, if you look at the life of Haman, you'll see something else emerge. Now that something else is a warning as well. Anger and rage can become justified, at least in your own sight. Anger and rage can become justified, at least in our own sight. Verse 5 says this. Look down at verse 5. After it talks about the elevation of Haman, it then tells us, because Mordecai would not bow to, to Haman, Haman was filled with rage. Now the Bible is very precise about how, how it uses language. To use this phrase, filled with rage, gives us great insight. It's not that he's mad. It's not that he's just ticked off. It's not that Haman just had a bad day because Mordecai wouldn't bow the knee. This man is filled with rage. His th every thought, his every idea, his every plan is somehow corrupted and motivated by this rage inside of his life. Because this is the man who desires human praise and wants to be the man, everyone else acknowledged his power except Mordecai. As a matter of fact, if you go back into Haman's home in chapter 5, again, this time in verse 13, look at what he says in verse 13. He said, yet all this, all these things that I have does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. I have all this power. I have all these things. I've been blessed in so many ways. But this eats me up that there's someone, there's one person that will not bend the knee. He will not worship me. Wow. So here's a guy that's filled with rage and as you carry through with the story, his life begins to be dominated by it. I'm gonna talk about that for just a moment. Rage and anger are intense. And that's what this whole point of the story is. This man gets carried away by his rage, gets carried away by his anger. These things are focused. They demand a victim. They consume. And we're not told all the reasons that Haman are so, is so filled with rage. Pride is much of it, but it could have been a lot of other things in his life going on. Pride certainly makes us want everyone to acknowledge our greatness. It could have been the rivalry between the Jews and the Amalekites that fed into that as well and made that a, a deadly mix. It could also have been bitterness in his life or unforgiveness in his life towards past things that have happened to him and now someone won't bow to him. He thinks that he is uh, above all and that rage that fills his life begins to dominate everything he does. 
And the next thing we look at in the life of Haman is literally like a final step into a pit that he can't get out of. And this third warning here is perspective and morality can be lost. When we're proud, when we have power, when we're filled with rage, we can very quickly lose sense of reason, logic, and reality. Look at verse 6. The Bible says he was very angry, filled with rage towards Haman. But he wouldn't lay a hand on Haman because of something else. He says this in, the, in verse 6. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, not just one of them, but all of them, because they were the people of Mordecai. So now not only anger is present, but a complete loss of perspective, a complete loss of morality. And in his mind, his anger and his rage justify the removal of an entire race of people. Now, if you want to talk about racism, here's the seed bed of racism. I don't like that one, so I won't like any of the other ones that come from that same man or those same people. And next week, we'll get deeper into what racism is, but here are the seedbeds of it. This is where it all began, with the unwillingness to accept others and the unwillingness to see others as your equal. So here we have these warnings. Pride and power can corrupt. Anger and rage can become justified in our mind, and perspective and morality can be lost. This is how one gets there. But I want you to get this point before I move on. Here is a story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It happens every time you have someone like Haman be elevated and be filled with the things he's filled with. And it's this truth that comes to reality. No one is bigger than God and he has a way of bringing the prideful down. Therefore, and that's what happens. The pride the power that is allowed to go unrestrained. You see it in the life of Haman. You see it in the man named Nebuchadnezzar, a leader long before this man, a leader of Babylon. He was so elevated in pride as he stood at his wall overlooking his city. He said, look at what I've made. Look at what I've created. No one has created the kind of kingdom I have created. I've done that for myself, and it reflects my own glory. And at that moment, God began to move to bring Nebuchadnezzar low. And if you read the story of the man named Nebuchadnezzar before long, he was on his hands and his knees groveling and living more like an animal than a man until he came to his senses and said, all right, I realize I'm not God. And I began to worship the God of Israel. Later on, that same Nebuchadnezzar came back into rulership into, as a king. And he said, I want everybody in the land to worship the God of Daniel because he is the one true God. God has a way of bringing pride down. God has a way of bringing us to humility. And he did that with Haman as well in the book of Esther. So in the midst of that pagan culture, what do we need to know about how to live? How do we avoid pride? How do we avoid losing any sense of reason when we're angry, when we're bitter, when someone has done something that we think is against us? How do we keep from losing perspective? Look at the life of Esther and the life of Mordecai and it comes shining through. Let me give you three truths or three reasons or lessons from Esther of how to rise above a pagan culture. And as I give you this today, let me keep in mind for you that we do live in a pagan culture in America. You are aware of that, right? We live in a pagan culture, a culture that does not worship God as a whole, a culture that, that does not see the Bible as the word of God or as the truth of God. We live in a pagan culture. 
that at some point in the future, you and I have an opportunity to live above the fray, live above everything else that we see happening, above the anger, above the pride, above all racism and things like that that we'll talk about more next week. We have an opportunity to live above. How do we do that? Well, that's why we have the life of Esther in front of us. That's why we have the life of Mordecai, lived out in brilliance for us to see. So let's look at some lessons from their life, three of them in all. First of all, and I do want you to make note of these. Number one, we must have an acute awareness, awareness of how small we are. An acute awareness of how small we are. That's in great contrast to Haman. He was only aware of how big he was, of how much power he had, about how much favor the king had for him. And yet, when you look at the life of Esther and Mordecai, they're making statements like this, if I perish, I perish. But who knows whether I've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Their awareness of God, their awareness of who God is, and their awareness of how small they were was very, very important. It's incredible how self-important we become and it skewers everything in our life. But here's what Esther and Mordecai knew. They knew they were valued, they knew they were loved by God, but they also knew they were small in comparison to who God is. It's a wise thing to have an acute awareness of how small we are. Sometimes I go outside and I look at the stars and the, the moon. Uh, I look at the movement of those stars. Sometimes I can pick out some different things in the, in the universe as I can see them, those lights shining down, the Little Dipper, the Big Dipper, uh, planets. I love to get behind a telescope and, and look at the planets. It's amazing how God has created something so big and how small we are. Some time ago, I watched a video, and that video had to do with how small we are, how big God is, and how uh, unbelievably present God is in even the smallest detail of our lives. And it helped me have perspective. And I want you to watch this video for, the, for a minute and 34 seconds. It is a great way to gain perspective. I watch that, I think about how small I am, how big the universe is that God created, and how much bigger God is than the universe, the solar systems, the galaxies, the stars. The God who created all that is so much bigger than all those things. Yet the God who created all that, who sees all that, also sees us and every part of us. That's a great sense of perspective, isn't it? 
He knows every hair on our head. He knows every molecule in our body, and yet he's the God of all the universe, all the planets, the solar systems, the galaxies, and all of space. He's that big, and we're that small. And sometimes we need to remember how small we are in order to recall how big he is, in order to recall how wise he is and how we should listen to him. Becoming small is important. And yet, even though we're small, God places us in a kingdom for such a time as this. That's Esther's story. That's Mordecai's story. And even though we're small, and even though we're just a tiny dot on a huge timeline of all eternity, God has amazing purpose for us and an amazing truth for us to live out every day that we'll never know if we lose sense of perspective as to how small we are and how big he is. The truth, number one, we must have an acute awareness of how small we are. I love Psalms chapter 8, verse 3, where David makes this statement. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's a great question. God, if you're so big and I'm so small, why do you love me so much? And then he goes on in verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and have made him, uh, you crown him with glory and majesty. You, you make him rule over all the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the sea. And then he concludes this little statement by saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is amazed by the the hugeness of God and the smallness of himself, and yet that God has placed him in such a, a, a great place to serve him. It's amazing what God has given us. We need to live in gratitude. We need to remember our smallness. I know when I was growing up, my dad saw it as his personal responsibility to help me be reminded how small I was and compared to everything else on earth. You know what I mean? Where, where he says something like, you're getting too big for your britches. You know what that phrase is all about? Being too big for your britches means you think you're a whole lot bigger than you really are. And I need to bring you down to size. And my dad had a way of doing that. Back in the day, it wasn't in a timeout. We didn't do anything like that. That took time out of his busy day to whip me and bring me back down to the right place. But the reality is sometimes we need people in our lives to size us back to appropriate size. We need friends to call us into accountability and say, wait a minute, you're getting too big for your britches. Wait a minute, you're losing perspective of how small you really are and how big God really is. Come back to your senses. Come back to reality. We all need that. God is incredible at doing that, but we need friends around us to do that as well. It's important for us to have an acute awareness of how small we are, secondly, second truth, second lesson is, remain free from the ra reasons for rage. You look at the life of Haman and all the possible reasons for the rage in his life. And my admonition to you is this, don't do it like he did it. Don't do this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, a great couple of verses together. It says this, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. It's clear Haman had a root of bitterness in his life. And I don't know about you, but I know this. 
deal with the reasons for rage. Deal with what makes you angry, what makes you bitter, what makes you hard-hearted about somebody else or some other group of people. We need to learn to deal with that because if we don't, it will carry us away. And the Bible says we can become defiled by that, unusable by God and those around us. I've noticed over the years that when people harbor unforgiveness and when they harbor bitterness, or anger towards a person or a group of people or a circumstance, and sometimes even anger towards God because God doesn't allow things to work out the way they wish. It becomes like a cancer in a body. It just begins to eat away and it multiplies in its deadliness. And before long, you have less and less ability to treat the cancer and it begins to consume you from the inside out. And at some point, life ceases altogether because of cancer left untreated. That's what... That's what unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and rage in your life does to your spiritual life. It eats you up. And before long, you have no ability to recover from it. And the Bible says some may become defiled in the sense of unusable before the Lord. I've seen people eaten up spiritually. I've seen them physically paralyzed, literally physically paralyzed because of unforgiveness in their life. It's almost like they're being tormented by these kinds of things. And I love the fact that the Bible gives us a ruddy and open door to do these things. We can confess our sins before God and we can ask for forgiveness. We can also forgive other people and release them from what they've done to us. That removes rage from our lives. That removes anger and bitterness from our lives. It allows us to live a life where we're accountable to each other and we call each other to account to not live held back by the chains of rage and anger the way Haman lived his life. So my encouragement to you is keep your confession list short and correct. Go before the Lord often and say, God, this person did that to me or I did this to someone else. Please forgive me and I forgive them. One of the great parts of the Lord's Prayer is that part where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That needs to be a daily prayer. And when we make that a daily prayer, a daily habit, we can live out a life of forgiveness, walking in a spirit of forgiveness, unlike Haman, who was filled with rage. Third lesson, third lesson, final lesson today. Keep perspective by knowing who God is. By knowing who he is. Not just that he's big, but knowing him personally, knowing who he is. Read about Esther in this book, and you're going to learn Esther knew what it meant to pray and fast and seek the Lord. In fact, she called all of her people to do that through Mordecai. And as they sought God, as they prayed and sought God, it became very evident that God gave her great wisdom. And she was able to enter into the king's uh, palace and make a request that ultimately saved her people because she knew God. God delivered her. God delivered the Jews. That's the whole message of this book because this woman knew who it was that she worshiped. Let me just tell you this today. If you know God, you'll be given the wisdom you need in the hour you need it, no matter what the situation is, no matter how devastating, how deadly, how difficult. God is able. He's the creator of the universe. He speaks all these things into existence. He can speak wisdom to you. And no matter how bad off you are, how difficult your circumstance, God knows what you need. How he knows when you need it, how you need it. And if you come to know the God of Israel the way Esther knew the God of Israel, the way Mordecai knew the God of Israel, you'll see the value of knowing God. 
Let me just tell you today, not only is it incredibly valuable to know God, the way to know God has become very evident to us as well. As we read our Bible, we come to the man, Jesus Christ, who came to fully manifest and fully explain God. One of the verses that I go back to over and over is in the book of John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, that would be Jesus, he has explained him, he has revealed him. Now, I know I'm jumping from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but that's the purpose of the New Testament, to give us an understanding of who God is so that we can have an understanding of how to know him through Jesus. Jesus explains God. Jesus explains who he is, how to get to know him, how to know his wisdom, how to walk with him day by day. And my word to you today is that Jesus is available to deliver you from the things that Haman never was delivered from. You know, one of the things about the gospel that I love so much, and really gospel living and gospel conversation is what really helps us know the things that I've just shared right here. And one of the things that the gospel teaches us is this. It teaches us that when we are saved, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're not just delivered from our sin, we're delivered from ourselves, from ourselves. And we need deliverance from ourselves, from our pride, from our tendencies, from our rage, from everything else that interferes with what God wants to do in our lives. When we come and give our lives to Jesus, when we turn away from our sin and everything else that we have, have worshipped or, or to believe in, and we put all of our trust and faith in Jesus, he delivers us from sin and self. And from that day on, he desires to live in us and through us in a daily walk. You know, the only way that you can really not be a Haman, the only way you can not exhibit those things is a daily walk with a God of the scriptures revealed through Jesus Christ and personally invested in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the life that's above what a pagan culture can ever offer. Let me say this to you today. All of us are at risk when we live in a pagan culture and all of us live in a pagan culture. But all of us can be rescued when we have the life of God and the life of Christ held out to us and we respond in faith, saying, I will follow him instead of the ways that I would otherwise walk. I want you to bow your head for just a moment and close your eyes as I come to the end of this message. I want just you to have a real clear understanding of what you might do next. Let's just say this today that you are someone that's already come to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I say today you've already become a Christian. You've been baptized after you gave your life to Jesus and it's been real and it's, it's authentic. But you struggle with something that we talked about today. Maybe you struggle with pride. Maybe you struggle with how you view other people. Maybe there is unforgiveness in your life. Possibly there's some rage, some anger. What do you do about that? You've already come to Christ and if that stuff's still there, what do you do? Well, you confess that. And often it's helpful to come to somebody else and say, here's what I struggle with. Here's what I need to confess. But ultimately, you confess this to God. God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, creating me a heart that is clean and pure and loving. Father, deliver me from my sin and myself. And that's something we pray every day. Though you're a believer today, you're struggling with something like that. Please let the Lord lift that off of you. Remove that from you. Forgive you give you a fresh start. 
There may be somebody in this room today has said, you know, I've never really given my life to Jesus before. I don't know what that means to have a personal relationship, but I know what it means to live like Haman was living. I know what it means to live in that environment. Let me tell you, the only deliverance from that is through God and through His Son, Jesus. And in a few moments, we'll invite you just to take a short walk across the room and talk to someone. I'm going to ask our prayer counselors to come to the front right now. They'll come and they'll stand in front. And when I conclude this, the message in just a moment with a prayer, they'll be standing here for you. And I want you to notice that they're here. They're just like you. They're just real people like you are. But they found real hope and real life in Jesus. And they know how to do that. They know what it means. And today they can answer your question. And even more importantly, pray with you if you're willing and ready to give your life to Christ. Don't walk out of here back into the pagan world without the realization that you can be saved from that sin and from self and to live a different way. We want you to have that today. I want you to stand with me if you would. And as we stand and as I prepare to pray, I want to invite you if you're a guest to our guest reception center right outside the center exit door across the hallway. But more importantly than that, if you have a decision to make today, or a conversation you need to have today, you walk forward at the amen of my prayer. All right, let's bow together in prayer. Father, I wanna thank you so much today that you have demonstrated the life of Haman and the life of pain, the life of agony and anger. And Father, you've offered us something in stark contrast to that. You've offered us life that's free from that, free from pride, free from anger, rage. Father, I ask you today to help us to take you up on that offer. Help us to know what it means to take a step of faith to believe you, to ask you for what you promised you would give if we ask. And I pray for every person in this room today to know it's available for them, it's available now. Help them have the courage to take that step of faith. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.